So good to be with all of you this weekend. Just as we were um, enjoying that last uh, beautiful worship song, uh, and just really coming out of all of the worship, I was just reminded again of uh, what an extraordinary access we have uh, to God as the people of God. I mean, it, it really is an amazing thing that, that we have access to God unhindered uh, because of his extravagant grace that he has lavished on us and that we get to live this life of daily, regular, unthought, unhindered access to God. I, I think the downside of having a life with that kind of access to God and that level of intimacy that's been affected for us and that great of a freedom that we have is that a lot of times in its repetitive nature, uh, we see the extraordinary become ordinary. I think that's one of the great downfalls of the evangelical Protestant church movement is that because we have discovered the gospel with such wonder and now just God is our friend. God, we're, we're God's kids. We just hang with him. We have forgotten that that's not normal. That we should not have this kind of access. That we should not be able to enter into God's reality with, with such seamless, unhindered beauty. That that is in fact an extravagant grace. And that extravagant grace over time uh, becomes ordinary grace. And then over time just becomes grace. And then we forget that it's even grace that we get to do it. We've been traveling with Paul, right? And Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, he wrote his first letter to them that was a very practical and corrective letter dealing with the behaviors that are the outward expression of what it means to follow Jesus. And so the first letter was very practical for us, for the church in Corinth, kind of saying, if you follow Jesus, then this is some of the stuff we would expect to see play out of your life. Not, this is what you do to prove you're following Jesus. It's, if you follow Jesus, then this is what it's going to look like. So let's live that out. And then he wrote a second severe letter we don't have access to where he was very challenging to them because they uh, were, were behaving and, and thinking badly. And so he wrote that and, and we're now in 2 Corinthians, which is the third letter Paul is writing. And in this letter, as he launches in this letter uh, to the Corinthian church, uh, what Paul has done over the first now two chapters and into the third is he is stirring the pot of grace for us. Okay, that's what he's really been doing. You know how something's been cooking up and you can't really smell it anymore and then you stir it up and you bring it to the surface and the aroma of grace comes flowing out of the pot and it, it comes into our nostrils and we're like, oh yes, yeah, that's what grace is again. Kind of forgot, but I can't forget now because Paul's just going, oh grace, extravagant grace. And that's where we've been traveling, right? And so Paul just most recently has really been unpacking for the church in Corinth and in so doing also for us, the wonder of the triumph that we have in Christ. And the reason he did that is because he's trying to remind us that when we feel graceless and when we don't have much grace, that when we reconnect to the triumph that we've had in Christ, that the, that extravagance of God's grace for us comes over us, that it affects, it births, it stirs in us the grace that God has called us into. 
And at the very end of that little paragraph, Paul writes these words. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to be in verse 17, just closing out 2 as we go into 3. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17 is where we're going to be as a quick recap. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Okay? So remember, Paul ended there kind of saying, we are not trying to sell you a cheap gospel. We are bringing you the wonder and beauty of the extravagant grace of God in the gospel. And he ends with a sentence. Now, if you read that sentence outside of the context that it's in, that sentence could sound quite boastful, could it not? We, Paul and my, and my entourage, were not like the others who peddle God's word cheaply. We are called of God to come to you and we speak in Christ. Could that not sound boastful? Could that not sound like Paul's trying to elevate himself so that he would say, look at us versus them, and you get into that argument, they're trying to stir things up about me, well, watch this, I'm gonna stir things up about them. That's what it could be, but look at what Paul does next. Look at this, the very next words, chapter three, verse one. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Paul asks the question. When I say this to you, that this is who we are, we're not here to sell the gospel cheaply, is it because I'm trying to elevate myself to some stature to place myself next to the guys that have stirred you up against me and try to show that I'm better than them? Is that what I'm trying to do? Is this a a tit-for-tat argument with those saying they're better than me and I'm saying, no, no, I'm better than them? And I watch Paul's gonna go, no, by all means not. Look, or do we need as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you. So now Paul is stepping into a very uh, ordinary situation that had taken place with the church in Corinth. Remember, one of the greatest beauties of what the Spirit of God does in the Word of God through these letters is that he takes everyday ordinary human stuff as Paul's writing to them and they're writing back and they're talking and he uses that as the platform through which he weaves the wonder of the gospel. He's not talking here. Oh, we're going to talk gospel here. It has nothing to do with human life. And he's not talking here. We're just going to talk human life. I didn't come visit you because I was stuck here and I didn't do that because of this. And, and I'm not trying to prove this to you. We're not going to stay here without going here. Here's what we're going to do. Every time we're here in normal human life, if you blink for a second, we're going to be talking gospel. We're going to weave it in. It's all so intertwined. You can't do one without the other. That's what makes this so crazy cool. And so here's what Paul does. He goes, am I, am I trying to boast? Am I trying to elevate myself? Do, do I need to bring some letters of recommendation to you? Why is Paul doing that? Why does he bring this odd sentence in here? Do you need my letters of recommendation? Because that's what the other guys from Jerusalem had stirred up about Paul. Remember, that was one of the issues that came to the table. When the Corinthians wrote back to Paul or sent a messenger, they were like, hey, hey, uh, do you happen to have any letters of recommendation about your apostleship? We're just curious. And you know, have you ever had your kids come to you and they ask you a question? You're like, you didn't come up with that by yourself. Who's stirring you up against me? I'm gonna find them and kill them, right? Have you ever had that? 
I have it all the time, right? You didn't think of that. One of your brothers and sisters sent you and said, ask him this, ask him this. And that's what happened here. The people from Jerusalem came up and they said, hey, out of curiosity, did Paul ever show you letters of recommendation? You know, like from James in, 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 in Jerusalem. Did he ever have those? Hey, Bob, you ever see those letters? Mm-mm. You see them? Uh-uh. That's odd. I don't think he had letters of recommendation. Oh, yeah, it's odd. I don't think he has them at all. Well, you should ask him. See what happened? They're coming to Paul saying, can we get your, can we get your docs that prove that you're an apostle? Because we're a little uncertain now. So Paul's writing back and he goes like this. Am I trying to elevate myself? Do I need to present to you letters of recommendation like from someone else to you about me? Or should I carry letters of recommendation from you wherever I now go? Because that was the typical thing, right? You'd build your resume. You were with the church in Corinth. How'd I do? How'd I do, people? You were awesome. Could you write me a little note that I could take with me, show the next place in Ephesus? Look, the Corinthians think I'm cool. That's how it rolled. And he goes, do I need that with you? Now look what he says. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Wow, what is Paul doing here? He's saying, guys, you're missing the entire point. We used to function in a world where it was all about how righteous I was versus how righteous you were and how many accolades I had versus how many accolades you had and that's what got me in right standing or better standing with God than you. But that's not how it rolls anymore. You wanna know what my letter of recommendation to you is? Have you forgotten who you were before I showed up? Have you forgotten who you were when I showed up in Corinth? Do you remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul said when he, when he came to Corinth first, we learned that when Paul got there, he'd already been beaten and kicked out of two towns before that, right? And he got to Corinth, and the first time he preached the gospel, it didn't go well. Remember that? Like they were like rioting, and he was going to leave, and God said to him, hold, I want you to stay here because there are people in this city that I'm here to rescue, and I'm going to use you to rescue them. And Paul stayed in Corinth because God told him that. And what Paul is saying is, have you forgotten? When I got to Corinth, I was going to make a few tents and move on. Because you guys were crazy. But God asked me to stay. And I stayed. And why did God ask me to stay? Because he told me, there are people here I want to write my grace over. I want to transform them. And I'm going to use you. Letters of recommendation. I have them. They're you and what God has done in you and how God allowed me to participate in that. And in the same way, it is to you. It should be a letter of recommendation of who God is because here's what he said. God wrote his letter to you and I delivered it. See, Paul's even saying, I'm not bringing you my letters. I'm not bringing you what I've done for you in Corinth. I'm not bringing you, see, I preached the gospel and you guys all came to know Jesus, so that's my proof. He's not even saying that. Do you see what Paul's doing here beautifully? God's the one writing this story, folks. God's the one writing this letter. I just got to deliver it. I don't need to bring you letters of commendation about anything, nor do you me. 
we need to get used to the reality that as we see the fruit of God born in our hearts, that is the beauty of the story of God. That's what we look for now. Now look. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Wow. See what Paul's beautifully doing here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? I'm not bringing you letters of accommodation. And then does Paul have them? Oh, Paul has them. Oh my goodness, Paul has them. He's got every degree in the book. And instead of going, oh, here, he, sure, here, look, I am worthy. He's going, no, no, you're, you're, you're looking in the wrong place. Because I'm no longer about elevating Paul. We have nothing to bring you. Even the letters I have, he will say later in Philippians, I count as rubbish in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. See, I don't bring any Paul to the table anymore. I bring Christ, Christ's story, Christ's uh, uh, beauty, Christ's glory, Christ's grace, and I just get to deliver it. So as long as I'm carrying Christ and delivering Christ, I don't need to prove anything about me. Because this isn't my story. This is God's story. And I get to participate in it. And that is the wonder and power. And if I was able to preach anything of worth to you, it is only because God was gracious enough to allow me to have that moment to do it. This is all about God's story. Now look what he says. He who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Such a silly sentence, isn't it? Just a little one, just right there. We're talking about letters of, of, of accommodation or letters of recommendation. We're talking about the difference between a letter and then the spirit written on the hearts of people. And then in a single sentence here, if you're just reading along, you won't even catch it. In a single sentence, the spirit of God does what he's done with every author in the New Testament of the Bible. In a single sentence, he transitions us from talking about human stuff to talking about the gospel. You didn't even catch it, did you? It was right there. He went like this. We're talking about letters and me not bringing letters. It's kind of like the new covenant and the old covenant, one written on stone and written into death and condemnation and one written into life through the spirit. And boom, there we are. We're suddenly engaged in the gospel. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by this little sentence? Not the letter but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What does he mean by that? Well, Paul will later on write to the church in Rome and he will unpack this reality in the book of Romans. Same author, here it is. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter eight. He explains this little sentence that he's gonna use as a transition from the ordinary humanity in which we live to the wonder and beauty of weaving the gospel in. This is what he says in Romans chapter eight, verse one. Listen. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Listen now. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. See, here's what Paul's writing in Romans, and it's exactly what he just said in one sentence in the book of 2 Corinthians. God gave us the law. The law was the visible expression of the righteous requirements to be right and righteous. And he gave that to us. He gave that to us. Remember? With Moses on the mountain. And it was good. The law was good. But the law written on the rock ended up being our condemnation. It damned us. Why? Because though the law was good, we were not And we did not have the power to meet the righteous requirements of the law. So we were condemned by the very goodness of the law of God. And he says, you see, when the law was written on stone, it was beautiful, but it was of no good to us who were weakened by the sinful nature. And so it was not by the law written on the rock that we were saved, but it was by the power of the Spirit who came and saved us and made us alive in Christ. And it was only that because of the work Jesus had done and has done for us. So God had to come rescue us because God had to empower us to be righteous by becoming righteousness for us because we couldn't be righteous ourselves. So he's saying, listen, just like this little thing we're dealing with, with letters of accommodation and all that, think about it. That's the difference between the beauty of the gospel versus the condemnation of the law that you could not fulfill. See, the Jewish people were still at this time in history, like all of us in our cultural context, living like this. Let me see your papers Ooh, you're a better Pharisee than me. You're more righteous than me. You've memorized more of scripture than me. You teach at more synagogues than I do. You, you, and then you became a Pharisee or a Pharisee of Pharisees or a leader. And everything was about jockeying for position so we could say, look at my stuff. I am worthy of being called of God. And Paul's going, that's all changed now, folks. That was under a system that was sinking us. But now God has done something new. And I am part of the new, as can you be. Now look, here's where it gets awesome. Now, verse seven, if the ministry of death, which was the giving of the law, right? If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed its glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Oh, that's a lot of words. What is he saying? What is he saying? He's saying, folks, think this through for a second. When God was on the journey of 
revealing to us that he was going to rescue our future, our destiny, our souls, our redeeming our future, restoring our purpose. When he first came to us, we were lost to all that was good and right. We had abandoned the Garden of Eden. We were living our own lives. The, the flood shows that. The Tower of Babel shows that. We were a disaster as a human race. And what did God do? Finding us enslaved in, in Egypt as the nation of Israel. What does God do? He rescues us from slavery and he gives us righteousness, right? The expression of righteousness, the law. And when he gave the law to the people, did he give it in obscurity? Did he not really show up and go, no. He showed up in such power, with such glory, revealing himself so definitely through the law that when Moses was on the mountain and God brought the law, Moses came down and the Bible says his face was glowing like the sun. So he had to cover it because the people were like, oh, we can't see. And so he had to veil his face so that they would not be blinded by the glory of God. And Moses, what glory did Moses see? Oh, Moses caught a glimpse of the glory of God, nothing big. Because when Moses said to God, hey, can I, can, I, can I see you? I mean, that's a fair request. God said, well, I'd love to show myself to you, but the problem is if you see my face, you die. I mean, not like die, like, uh, slow death, like disintegrate, it's over, finished. Nothing will be left of you. Because, because sin cannot reside in the presence of God and cannot look upon the glory of God. So here's what I'll do, Moses. I'll stick you inside a rock. That's, that's pretty harsh. I'll put you inside a rock. And then you look away. And then I will dart by you in a split second with my back. And it will be so much for you that you will glow for the next few weeks. Really? Like glow? Yep, glow, man. You're going to feel the buzz. It's going to be crazy. And that's not seeing my glory because that would kill you. That's just catching a glimpse. And then, then you will become someone that will reside with me in a tent as a friend does with a friend so that the people will know that they can come to someone to continue to dialogue with me. Moses became the mediator between the people and God because they could not even look upon the glory that was reflected in Moses' face, let alone the glory of God himself. And here's what Paul's saying. If when God brought the law, that was the magnitude of the glory he displayed to us, that was the magnitude of the grace that he demonstrated to the human race, how much more can we expect that when he sends the Spirit who sets us free and rescues our soul, that his glory in that will not exceed the glory of the law. See, we could not have known when we received the law that though the law was glorious, that it was also condemning. And that when we encounter the great work of Jesus Christ, his redemptive work, and we encounter the clarity of the gospel, that the law that was beautiful will actually look without glory, like a, a condemning death because of the life the Spirit gives us. See what he's doing? He's comparing beauty with greater beauty, grace with greater grace, and saying this grace makes that grace look like not grace. That's how awesome this is. Oh, we're not even close to done. Look at this. So he's getting started here. Now watch this. Watch this. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Don't you love that? Since we belong to the new covenant, 
the great glory of the Spirit of God who has set us free from sin and death because our sin nature weakened us from being able to set ourselves free despite having a clarity of what righteousness was, that he has made us alive in Christ and that through Christ's great redemptive work, we are free from the condemnation of the law since we know this, we are bold. That's what Paul says. We're bold. We're bold because we know the new covenant. Now look at this. We are bold like what? Look, not like Moses. We are bold in a way Moses was not bold. Did Moses carry the glory of God? Yes, he literally carried it. It literally shone from his face. And what was his response to the carrying of the glory of God? Veil the face so that the Israelites can, can, will not look upon the glory of God because it is too much. Unlike Moses, he says, since we are in the new covenant, we do not need to veil for we are bold about what we know. Now watch, oh, watch. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. What is he saying? Remember, he's talking in the ordinary as well. These guys that had come up from Jerusalem are comparing notes on their letters of recommendation saying, where's Paul's? We're better than him. And he's going, that's how we used to function, boys and girls. We used to compare notes and see who had the better set of notes, who was the writer with God, who was the, the better with God, and then we would listen to those people. But, but listen, that is the veil that still sits over our faces because now in the new covenant, it is no longer about us at all. It's about the glory of God and we are the recipients of freedom. What more could we want? Because even now when Moses has read, the functioning is still completely veiled, no understanding of freedom. The, the people still function as though there is some righteous requirements they gotta go live out to be right with God. You can't. They can't and it is only through Christ that we will overcome what we cannot accomplish. And now look, he's gonna say it, but it's gonna, it's gonna be said so cool. Watch this. So he just said their minds are veiled. Yes, to this day, wherever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And he says this, verse, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. We read that like it's an ordinary sentence, don't we? Well, when you turn to the Lord, the, the veil is removed. The, the veil is removed. Do you understand what that just said? Here's what that just said. That you and me, who are human, who cannot look upon the glory of God without being annihilated, when we come to Christ, that veil is removed. And we stand face to face with the full glory of God and we do not die. Instead, not only do we live, but we live in a fullness of freedom we could not have imagined as a human being before that. Do you understand how impossible that is? This is not a small sentence. Oh, well, when you come to Jesus, the veil is removed. This should be the veil is removed. That is not possible. We should cower under that sentence only to find ourselves not cowering but free. And look, Paul bothers to say it. Look at this. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, he says. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. We are utterly free under the new covenant because nothing hinders us from the access we have to the glory of God that should not be ours to access ever. Not even Moses could access it and live. He caught a glimpse and we have fully stared into the glory of God. Now look at this. Oh, it's it's not done yet. We're not even at the good part. I'm not kidding. The good part's still to come. Look, look at this. This is so crazy. Here's the good part. Ready? Buckle up. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the full glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you hear what that just said? For we all who know Christ come with unveiled faces and stare directly into the full glory of God. And instead of dying under the glory of God, we are transformed and being transformed from one glory to another And this is the work of the Spirit of God. Doesn't even count on you and me. Doesn't even say as long as you fill in the blank. He's just like, this is what it means to be free in the Spirit. The extravagant grace that is our access to the glory of God is beyond human comprehension. And we ought not to forget it so easily. When I was growing up, I grew up in a military family. I was a military brat, right? And my dad, he had this knack to be able to come into a military base that was a disaster zone and within two or three years to turn the entire thing around and turn it into a finely oiled machine that was an incredible military base. So we moved a lot, you can imagine, because here's what they did with my dad. They'd bring him in to a mess. He would turn it around over two years, sometimes one, sometimes three, And then they would move him to the next mess and hand the nice, beautiful base over to somebody that could actually handle a good base and didn't need to fix broken things. So everywhere I went as a child, I grew up on military bases and my dad was always the highest ranking military officer on that military base. He was always the commanding officer. Now, as a kid, I didn't know what that meant, right? Because he he was just my dad. I I didn't know what these things were. I didn't know why the people did this to him all the time. I just knew he was my dad, that's it. And on the military bases I grew up on, there was housing, and then there was the actual base itself. And the base, the the entire complex was generally guarded, but then the military base itself was heavily guarded. There were gates, soldiers with weapons. And if you or I tried to access that military base without permission, it would not go well for us at all. We would die, okay? I had a little bicycle, this little bike. You remember in Dennis the Menace, like, Place that picture in your head because that a little bike. And I would ride up from my house up the little hill and I would make the little right hand turn and I'd head straight toward these giant gates. And you know what happened every time as I head toward the gates? They opened every time. I never pulled a, 
ID out. I never pulled paper out. I, I just rode my little bike. And then there's this big soldier with a gun. They were, they were nice people. And they would, they would wave at me, and then they weren't sure if they were supposed to. And then i just ride my little bike. And as I went through the military base, every point I got to, the doors and gates were just open. Never presented squat to anyone. I'd get to my dad's little office and park my little bike and walked in down the hallway. I, I realize as an adult now, nobody walked down that hallway without permission. Nobody got through my dad's executive assistant without permission. Nobody. Nobody got in the gate of the military base without permission. Except me. Because everybody knew who I was. I was the son of the commanding officer. And you know you don't mess with that. Because he's, he's got access. That's what he has. And that's not our story. Do you know that? That's not actually our story. Our story isn't that we are the kids of the king and so we have access to the military base. That would be a cool story. But ours is better. Do you know why? Because before we were ever a kid of the king, we were his enemy. We were the very people that the military base is set up to protect the commanding officer from. We were the ones that were meant to be kept out from God, out from freedom, out from heaven, out from relationship, out because we were the enemy of God. And you know what he did? He came out of the military base to where we resided in death and horror and he made us, his kids. And he said, now, when you come to the base, just wave, because the gates will open. You'll head on in. Anytime, anywhere, I'm right here. Listen to this. Psalm 100, listen to this. This is our life. This is our life. Psalm 100, verse one. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen, amen, and amen. You know what life we get to live? It's no wonder Paul wrote in this passage, since the new covenant is ours, we are bold, is what we are. We are bold. Bold with what? Bold with everything. I don't know what your circumstances are. I don't. There's too many of you. I have no idea. Some of you may be at the top of your game having a blast and some of you may be at the bottom in the pit. Some of you may be f facing physical circumstances that are overwhelming and you don't know what's gonna happen. Maybe some disease has come your way or maybe something is unfolding. Some of you are fa facing financial wonder or financial crises. Some of you are facing relational insanity your marriages are, are struggling, falling apart. Your kids have disowned you or you've disowned them, not sure which anymore. You're struggling with friends or enemies or coworkers, or some of you are doing really well, best years of your life so far. I don't, I don't know what circumstances you're in. But if you know Jesus, here's what I do know about you just like I do know this about me. You don't know who my dad is. You don't know who my dad is. Because it doesn't matter whether I see the promises realized on this planet or not. 
Maybe cancer wins, maybe it doesn't, but it still loses. Maybe relational dynamics win, maybe they, 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 they don't, but it still loses. In the end, it doesn't matter how hard it gets down here. Here's what matters. I have full access to the glory of God. Unveiled is my face and I am free. And yes, today is hard. It is not, un, not a undoing how hard it is. I just think we forget so often who we are and who God is and that we belong to him and he belongs to us and we have full access so we can be bold in circumstances. Is circumstances trying to prove to you that it's over, that, that the enemy wins, that, that, that everything's lost? Well, get up. Stare that circumstance in the face and say, you don't know who my dad is. You might have your win today or tomorrow or the next day, but I leave this planet of death soon enough and everything loses then that is not of God. And I belong to God, so I win. See, your dad, my dad, because he's our dad, gives us free access to the base every day and forever. And not only should we be bold in our circumstances and our relational dynamics and our resource challenges, but we should be bold with the message of the gospel, should we not? If you know your dad is the commanding officer of the entire base, wouldn't there be some sense in you to go, yeah, you know my dad is? Yep, yeah. the guy with all the things here. <laughs> yeah, that's my dad. But then you get to do this. My dad wasn't always my dad. And he made me his kid. And he can do the same for you. You can have him as a dad too. That's pretty awesome. It's not out of pride. It's not out of honor. It's not me saying because I'm a king of the kid, I get to be blessed in ways you don't. It's exactly the opposite. I really once was not, and now I am. And that's pretty awesome. So, do you see what Paul's doing for us? Do you see what the Spirit of God's doing for us? Do you struggle with grace? Do you? I do too. But the more we find ourselves immersed in the aroma of grace in our nostrils, the extravagant grace of God and the new covenant, the more we will find ourselves full of grace toward each other. Because God, God is the one who gives us grace and God is our grace to others. And it is the spirit of God who is transforming you and me into the people he's made us for from glory to glory to glory. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace, your extravagant, ridiculous, impossible grace that has made us new in Christ, alive in Christ, and is making us from glory to glory more like Christ so that we might be ambassadors of Christ while on this planet only to leave this planet into full victory to experience the fullness of the glory of God. Remind us this day of the extraordinary privilege it is that we get to walk through life with faces unveiled so that the fullness of your glory might be revealed to us every day. And instead of 
costing us our lives. It is transforming us into you, into being of your likeness, ambassadors of you. Oh God, that we might never forget the extravagance of your glorious grace to us. Help us to ride our bike every day through the gates, to park it and come sit by your feet in our freedom. But help us never to forget that that shouldn't be possible and we shouldn't have that privilege. And help us to be in awe of what you have done for us, we pray in Jesus' name.